0: Welcome to Kingston Reed's Word to the Wise podcast series for HR and safety professionals. Good afternoon and welcome. My name's Alistair Booth and I am joined by
1: Stephen Amendola.
0: And this is the first in our series of four podcasts where we discuss the outcomes document that the government has released after the Jobs and Skills Summit held last week in Canberra and specifically what it might mean for employment and industrial law. There's a lot in that Jobs and Skills Summit document, isn't there, Stephen? So I think we'll just take it in bite-sized chunks. And this week we might just focus more on the collective or the industrial-type proposals. So why don't you get us started, Stephen? It's a long time since the government has been keen to discuss industrial relations and bargaining, hasn't it? So what are the key themes that are coming through in that document?
1: You're indeed right about that, the... LNP almost had an aversion to discussing industrial relations other than for one period uh, last year, and then their enthusiasm disappeared very quickly uh, when uh, the omnibus bill was opposed. But there are the, if one just looks at the document that they've put forward, the outcomes, they've talked about the government updating the Fair Work Act to create a simple, flexible and fair new framework that ensures all workers and businesses can negotiate in good faith for agreements that benefit them, including small businesses, women, care and community services sector, and First Nations people. So the terms flexible and fair currently appear in the Fair Work Act. Yeah, uh, one, so one
0: would think that we already strive for those goals, don't we?
1: Indeed. The word simple doesn't appear, and... True. As we all know, simple is easy to say, but simple is not easy to do. The other thing that's interesting is they talk about it being a new framework, which is almost slightly horrifying, given that the current Fair Work Act is about four inches thick <laughs> uh, as to what that may mean. I'm presuming that it's more like a renovation and they're sort of doing the odd room in the house, maybe the kitchen and the bathroom, not the rest of the house, but we would just have to see. There are things that came out either before the summit or during the summit. So out of left field came the idea of multi-employer bargaining right at the death. And it's something that was sort of enthusiastically embraced by the government because it was at least enthusiastically embraced by um, the Council of Small Business and the ACTU. So that looks as if it's something that will be explored. So you're going to have something that's apparently simple, flexible and fair but it wouldn't necessarily be new. Multi-employer agreement provisions exist in the current legislation, but it's something we can get back to. Yeah, yeah. and
0: I want to spend some time talking about that too because I think that's really important to convey is that that we do already have these abilities. So, you know, I want want to talk about a bit later. Why why is it that we don't use the current framework that exists?
1: Yeah, and the, the other thing is that a lot of the debate in the public arena is you know, is multi-employer bargaining effectively industry bargaining? Is it at large? Is it going to be permitted at large or is it going to be targeted? When you consider the opening statement that I read, it looks as if it may be targeted rather than across the board. So they're looking to encourage small business to be involved in enterprise bargaining because there was an issues document that said... Only 2% of small businesses were in, had enterprise agreements, which is absolutely no surprise. The care sector, which I imagine is the childcare sector, that is consistent with what the ACTU said because along with aged care, which I take from community services sector to be the sector they're probably focused on, they both receive funding from state and federal governments and McManus suggested that funders should actually be at the table. Now, that would be very interesting if that was required, but it doesn't look as if it's at large. And the reference to women and First Nations people is more a broad reference across the Act, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, if we take flexibility and simplicity, I think these concepts are great in theory for both employees and employers. And I've got to say that in general terms, what is good for employees is also good for employers and vice versa. And I think flexibility and simplicity are goals that both sides would strive for in this particular area. What that actually means, as you say, in terms of legislative reform is a little less clear. There was some discussion about the award system and it being less complex. Um, I think that the outcomes document doesn't focus too much on that because, as I think uh, our listeners and you and I know very well, the award system has been through a momentous process of simplification and while it's still complicated it's a hell of a lot simpler than it used to be so stripping out awards anymore is unlikely to be I think what the government is referring to here but I agree with you it it might be the ability particularly for small businesses to reach more flexible type agreements that are somewhat simpler than the quite complex award that covers industries such as retail and hospitality where a lot of these um, small businesses do sit. I also noted that and was interested to see in the outcome document that the government says it will consider options to support the Fair Work Commission to build cooperative workplace relationships and give the Fair Work Commission the capacity to proactively help workers and businesses reach agreements particularly for new entrants, small and medium businesses. I mean, the Fair Work Act, uh, the Fair Work Commission, pardon me, already does have some ability to assist bargaining parties in reaching resolution. But does this suggest to you a a far more hands-on approach, like almost an advisory-type approach being taken by the Fair Work Commission in relation to those new entrants and small businesses in particular?
1: Yes. I think the way I read it is the I well I mean being if, if if one looks at it in terms of some of the statements they've made supporting the Fair Work Commission to build those relationships speaks to me about expanding the Fair Work Commission to be able to provide those uh, to, right. to provide those services you know being being resourced but moreover if the idea is to have people new entrants let's just call them new entrants using the system who've not used the system previously and assuming that they're going to simplify the system, it's probably to help walk them through the system, to help them uh, perhaps, you know, maybe an expansion of what currently exists of interest, that interest-based bargaining part of the commission to enable them to reach an agreement or to at least understand the process of reaching an agreement. So I think it is one, more hands-on, and two, involves the process of expanding the number of people who are on the commission, which I think would meet that objective of trying to rebalance what they see as an imbalance uh, of members on the commission.
0: Another point that's on the commission that has received a lot of focus is, of course, the boot or the better off overall test. And there were, I think, some legitimate criticisms of the difficulty in in getting an enterprise agreement approved in times gone by. The Commission has, has made serious inroads on that process, though, and it is nowhere near as difficult as it used to be. But the boot itself, what the government is talking about now, is considering ways that it can become simpler and fairer. In basic terms, what I see here is that That just means a loosening of the requirement to consider every hypothetical employee and roster and perhaps um, granting more discretion to the Commission when approving agreements, particularly where approving agreements that that perhaps may have had a union bargaining representative and therefore assumptions may be made about the issue of genuine agreement and the, the terms and conditions of employment meeting a certain standard. Would you agree? What's your observations about the promised reform to the boot and the impact it will have
1: i think we've already seen the promised reform to the boot because it was in the omnibus bill i think we'll get what was in the omnibus bill and that is something which says you don't look at hypothetical rosters or hypothetical situations in determining approval and that you can have regard to a broader base you know what's often described as non-monetary benefits something that allows someone to get a benefit and which they trade off for something else. The problem with the boot has been that sort of line. To me, the acronym is Better Off Overall Test and the overall part of the Better Off Overall Test has been ignored (laughs) to a large extent. It's
0: the bot test. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that's right and even though the commissioners in imp- because you know it, as you as you say it got to a point where it was ridiculous you know taking an agreement a year to be dealt with uh, if you didn't replicate exactly the wording that was in an award yet they wouldn't approve it it was sort of stupid the idea of just not whilst they've done that there are still a lot of agreements with a lot of undertakings which have the um, the overhang of that sort of approach so but I'm not sure that it's going to be revolutionary. Rather, rather, what was in the in the Omnibus Bill? That doesn't mean it won't be an improvement. It will. Yeah. The thing that's interesting is that the statement says removes unnecessary complexity for workers and employees, employers, including making the better-off test simple, flexible, and fair. So it's not just the boot, but what else yeah. would it be?
0: <laughs> well, it's an excellent question because I do think that. The very singular focus on the boot to somehow lift the levels of, of bargaining within the private sector in particular and, and to boost wages growth, which is, is said to be the stated goal, is a little misplaced. The boot is certainly, and its rigidity with this hypothetical employee and roster analysis is difficult because I agree with you, it's a bot, not a boot. And I think that many employers look at that and say, well, what's the point in doing an EA? And in my experience, employers only do enterprise agreements if they have to. Um, let's face it, I haven't come across many employers who say who don't have an enterprise agreement and say, please, 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 um, I'd really like to enter one for all of these great reasons. And I think we need to look beyond the boot to to determine what those reasons are, and and perhaps they're not fixable, but in principle, other root causes do need to be analysed in order to to really lift the level of bargaining, if that's the stated goal of the government, which it seems to be.
1: I think, and I mean, and you've you've written about this, uh, you know, there's... The idea, this sort of agreement exhaustion when you've had, you know, Mark 15 yeah. of an agreement or what have you. Yep. And, yep. and in a way... It's the a government-
0: calcification of terms, isn't it? When it's yes. Mark 15, you are not going to smash it apart and start again. You don't. And the parties just tend to argue about changing one word in a sentence. And, and, and that's not going to boost either productivity or wages in any meaningful sense.
1: Absolutely right and so therefore they would be saying if we expand the options for bargaining for something like multi-employer bargaining that is part of you know giving other yeah. more flexible yeah. options giving those part those those people who don't want to be part of the system an opportunity to be part of the system yeah. i mean i do think that it is an optimistic goal for example if the jobs outcome the job summit uh, paper that was presented talked about 2% of uh, small businesses being involved in agreement making, I would be and I'm happy to be surprised if it went anything more than 3 to 5% even if multi-employer bargaining became part of it because if you've, you've got, got to answer, an answer the question of, of what's in it for you. Yeah, yeah.
0: if you've got I, – I, small businesses can be very large numbers of employees, yeah. you know, you could. it depends on your definition but we could be talking to about anything up to say 50 employees and then I can see that there'd be benefits – but if you're a, a very small business, say a retail enterprise, and you have less than five employees, I don't say that there would be a benefit for you in entering into a bargaining agreement, whether that be a multi-employer agreement or a single employer agreement, because you can offer flexibility and above award terms yourself without having to do that. So That's I, true. I, I think you're right.
1: We, um, and and it sort of it sort of makes the comment about awards... <laughs> and making them less complex and more flexible sort of intriguing because I do think there are areas where awards have been more complex. You know, when you have a whole lot of retail and hospitality awards, the Shads Awards, another example of something that's uh, that goes all the way to the top and is complex. And I was going to ask you, Alice, yeah. and I'm sorry because this is on no notice whatsoever, but, <laughs> uh, but I don't think that awards have been partic- are particularly modern, but in reducing the number of awards... One might say that one should look at some of these bigger, all-encompassing awards to see whether they ought to be effectively broken up so that they more reflect elements of industry. Uh, and yeah, I wonder what you, I, I wonder what you think about that.
0: I think that's a valid comment. I completely support the principle of the awards simplification and modernisation process, which reduced it because then you could. The idea was to have these industry awards, which would encompass greater numbers of enterprises and make things simpler. But I'm with you that now Now we have a difficulty really in determining award coverage for some enterprises because so many of the smaller, more niche industries have been swallowed up in these big awards like the Manufacturing Award, like the Shads Award. And that does mean that some of the terms aren't fit for purpose. And, and I would hope that if one of the, the harking back to uh, one of the goals that we talked about earlier about the Fair Work Commission being equipped to assist businesses with agreement making, perhaps if it was equipped, the judicial members were equipped with the, the function to be able to determine award, award coverage, that would be a very useful thing for small to medium businesses who don't otherwise have the resources perhaps to, to get the expert advice or, or to have in-house industrial relations or, or HR personnel to determine these things. Um, so, so that's one idea I do think would work.
1: I think it would actually assist businesses generally because it would assist compliance because these coverage provisions are quite broad And because of the nature of them, they overlap. And so it's actually difficult to give advice about it. So anything that gives you certainty going forward has got to be a positive thing in terms of the Yeah, and the only
0: alternative is to apply to the federal court for a declaration and, and, you know, that's not exactly a practical suggestion (laughs) to to resolve that ambiguity. But going back to one issue we were talking about before with the the multi-employer or industry bargaining, what really interests me is... The lack of focus, and I think this is more a media thing, on the provisions that currently exist now, we do have the ability for businesses to enter into multi-employer agreements under the Fair Work Act, and we also have a low-paid bargaining stream in the Fair Work Act. It seems to me that those two things are precisely what the government is talking about. The low-paid bargaining stream, and the ACTU as well, the low-paid bargaining stream seems squarely focused on social and community services, um, the childcare sector, perhaps the aged care sector as well. And this multi-employer bargaining that we already have in the Fair Work Act is squarely aimed at say, the retail businesses, that that, like an IGA, for example, that all may go under the same banner as a franchise but be separate employers. But neither of those two provisions or or frameworks already available under the Fair Work Act are used. I I wouldn't say ever, but very, 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 very rarely. So, So what are the blockers to them being used? Because surely a simple way of fixing it is examining those blockers and, and changing them.
1: You're quite right. And so I think I looked at those provisions back in 2009 when they came in and in the bill. <laughs> and never and, then I've, and never again because they didn't get used. So the two streams, you can have sort of a low-paid um, authorisation or a single-interest uh, authorisation. The process of getting them isn't simple, though. I mean, mm. in relation to the low-paid authorisation, you go to the commission and then you've got provisions that say... Uh, the Commission must take this into account, and then they've got a provision underneath that which says they must also take a whole lot of other stuff into account. So, you know, the, the actual getting above the threshold to get the authorisation is difficult. Uh, with a single interest authorisation, in a sense, it's even more so because you've got to get a ministerial declaration. So yeah. the, so we that's you... the
0: only one I've had experience with. and. Mm. That declaration was knocked back by the relevant minister at the time. It, it seems to be an unusual test, and and perhaps we could just replace it with the application to the commission, and the commission has to consider certain grounds before giving approval. I, I don't know, but I, I don't think we need to reinvent the wheel. Is my point?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. The only, th- I mean, there are there are some, you know, as I said, it's sort of easy to sort of put something forward, but how it works practically can be a bit interesting. So, you know identifying the employers that might be covered by an authorisation is something that you can't just ignore. But the Mm. process of getting the authorisation could be simpler and then people take it up or they don't take it up. Mm. I suppose from the union movement's perspective, the other thing that they'd say is a reason why it's not taken up is because there's no capacity for industrial action in respect of both of those areas, in relation to both, both of those things. Now, that would be... subject of some controversy Um, Mm. you know and again it's easy to say oh you should be able to take industrial action how (laughs) using what mechanism in respect of what employers just everyone just because Uh, and those are things you'd want to be very careful about and it's and those are things where whatever the Greens say I think crossbenchers may have an opinion about leave aside the LNP uh, yeah, but yeah, but making it simpler to get the authorization may actually be useful and also you know my sense is that you know you've got these outliers at play you know these red unions or rafu for example and my my you know i wonder whether or not one is wanting to make have the system in a way where the, the the actual participants in the system are the ones who get to sort of determine these things a little bit more easily you know, Mm. a real registered organisation as opposed to a pretend union like RAFU, for example.
0: Yeah, yeah. One thing that's very striking to me that that I see in enterprise bargaining constantly is a reduction in flexibility. And it struck me that every enterprise agreement has to have an individual flexibility term. Now, the model term that is, In the Act provides for agreements to be made on an individual basis that are are very flexible uh, about a number of different items but it is standard practice when you're doing an enterprise agreement um, that involves uh, a union that the number of things that one can make an IFA or a flexibility agreement about is reduced on the demand of the union so it might just be reduced to something like blood donor leave or jury um, duty leave, which is basically meaningless when it comes to achieving real flexibility or simplicity that meets the needs of an individual employee. So it struck me that, that another way to assist with flexibility and particularly the access for women and carers in a workplace would be to ensure that the flexibility agreements have to actually have certain elements in them so that real flexibility can be achieved because I'm not sure that the enterprise bargaining system and what it's become with many of its standard terms really allows for the flexibility to have I think particularly women or people with carers responsibilities take a meaningful part of a number of industries.
1: I think that's absolutely right and that's because, you know, one has to move away. The one thing that the last two years has uh, demonstrated to us is that you have to move away from the underlying assumptions of most either awards or agreements in the system, and that is a man working from Monday to Friday from yeah. 9 to 5, putting bread on the table. That's not the way it necessarily works now. You know, another thing in a broad sense, if you're going to sort of assist women and carers, in my opinion, to be, to be able to participate is to indicate that discrimination, the discrimination provisions in the Act also include indirect discrimination because there are agreements that are replete with provisions that if indirect discrimination applied to them are indirectly discriminatory. So, for example, you know, you can't have... In Victoria, you can't have part-time firefighters.
0: Or construction workers.
1: Yeah. No no part-time
0: provisions in in most construction uh, industry enterprise agreements.
1: Yeah. Now, whilst changing that won't change the culture what it is is a step towards changing what what can be in an agreement that the tribunal will approve. And if yeah. they're not going to approve it because it's indirectly discriminatory, then it starts to provide an option because, you know, in those areas and sectors, you know, the 1980s silos ad shouldn't be applying anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. I also think... Back in the day, uh, we used to be able to apply to the commission and its predecessors for award variations. Uh, and in the New South Wales IR system, that's how it operates for the public sector as well. You know, So awards become a, a quasi-EBA, if you like, because it, you make applications as part of bargaining. That's not really possible anymore under the Fair Work Act with our federal awards. So perhaps also looking at some ability to more proactively apply for award variations may assist with this with the lower paid streams. This isn't about helping As I understand that the government's agenda, and it's one that I agree with, this isn't about assisting bargaining of the really highly paid people. So a lot of resources sector, construction sector, you've got enterprise agreements where people are 100%, if not more, 200% above award rates. What we're talking about here are more the aged care sector, for example, where enterprise agreements tend to be very, very, very narrowly meeting the boot, or or perhaps the childcare sector would be in that that same category. So, looking at more agile awards might be something to consider as well.
1: Yeah, uh, the only thing there, from a matter of, as a matter of policy, is that what they wouldn't want to get to is a circumstance that brought about the idea of modernising award when you had two two and a half thousand awards and uh, <laughs> and they were all leapfrogging. We don't each want to other. go back. Yeah yeah. 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 I mean, th- but there's a balance to be achieved, and I think it comes to that point that having had these modern awards in place for 12 years, should some of them be either deconstructed more or, or be able to be varied <laughs> in a way which deconstructs. It's a bit of an oxymoron,
0: isn't it? Modern awards, because a lot of them aren't particularly modern, um, even though it's well, it's now 12 years, isn't it? Since since that process was undertaken, although they're subject to four yearly reviews. One of the last issues I want to touch on is um, at the other end of agreement making with this ability to to apply to terminate enterprise agreements. I always get, I have a bit of a laugh sometimes at at press coverage and you know how, how it's sometimes reported that employers are going to rip up this enterprise agreement. I'm like well that's rubbish, employers can apply to the Fair Work Commission enter into very lengthy, complicated litigation and at the end of it the Fair Work Commission, subject to a pretty strict legal test, will determine whether or not that enterprise agreement is terminated. And And the figures speak for themselves. I, I think uh, I read recently that, that 97% of applications are uncontested, 2% are contested and 1% um, are contested but they're made by uh, unions and so by and large This provision is used to get rid of what the zombie agreements are, what are called zombie agreements. And I note from the outcomes document that I think that that will be squarely dealt with. And as you say, it'll be back to, to what the Omnibus Bill set out to do, which was to sunset zombie agreements in the first place, quite rightly. And obviously, without that sunsetting provision, employers and unions are really only left with the ability to, to apply to the Commission to terminate them and, and that's generally what happened. For those tiny number of contested ones though, I think the, the language has slightly changed and in my view it, it really looks more like what we're going to be seeing is perhaps just a change to the test that the Commission will use in order to determine whether or not an agreement is terminated. What's your view on, on what we'll see in relation to Section 225?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm with you. It's certainly not, as the Minister described it a few weeks ago, a rort. (laughs) And it is, as you describe it. I wonder whether... Yes, I think you can either have a change to the test, which might put more weight on certain elements, like Uh. the views of the employees, uh, for example. Alternatively, they might have an expansion of their discretion as to what they may do if the Commission decides to terminate an agreement. So... At the moment, if they decide to terminate it, they terminate it, but often they're seeking undertakings. Yes. what they might be given the power to do is to indicate that they will terminate it from a particular date. So mm. it provides a period of time that then perhaps allows the negotiation of an agreement to continue on with mm. a sort of a drop dead date, which you know might encourage the objective of having more bargaining or more Correct, or more agreements. Yeah.
0: Yeah, or, or perhaps to require, the other thing I was thinking was, in my experience, most of these, when these applications get made, it is generally the case that an undertaking is given, that the take-home pay, so the wages and allowances will not drop upon termination of the agreement. So it, it's not true to say that in all of these cases, workers go back to the award wage. that That's generally not the case, in fact. So... Perhaps the test could be changed to make that a requirement, that, that take-home pay wages and allowances remain the same or do not drop below a particular level for a certain period of time.
1: Yeah, which to me would be facilitated by saying, you know, yeah. we can have power to terminate it, but may, but we can determine when termination yeah. is going to, going to take effect. Yes, because um, that
0: discretion doesn't exist now. It's, yeah. it's the, the Act says the Commission must terminate agreement if it, if it is satisfied of the following things. Yeah. Now, that that's not providing the Commission with the discretion to terminate all parts but not all of it, if you like, yeah. or to terminate, as you say, on a particular date or in a staged fashion, which, which may address some of the concerns that have been voiced by the government. Yep. Okay, last issue... I saw that the government has included establishing a secure Australian jobs code to prioritise secure work. This is not a new concept, is it? A government using its procurement power as a client to to achieve a certain outcome.
1: Indeed. I mean, it's, uh, it's deeply ironic that the, the building codes got gutted and yet they're likely to put a code in place that has a very similar structure and approach. So in Victoria, we've got this thing that's just been issued a couple of weeks ago called the Victorian Fair Jobs Code, which I think might be a bit of a signpost in relation to the federal code. And There's there also one in the
0: ACT too that applies. That, that, yep.
1: that operates slightly differently. Mm. And you know, it's one where you've got to get a certificate in order to be able to mm. yep. enter into procurement agreement with the government and for procurement contracts of a larger size there are certain standards you have to apply with and that's where it's a different type of social engineering in Victoria it's you're going to have to show the makeup of your workforce and if you're using casuals or contracting people in justifying why you're doing it they also go and indicate that if you there's a complaint system which I could see being misused and you've got to demonstrate why you know to me in Victoria it's it's that sort of different social engineering functions and having unions more involved in your procurement. Yeah. Now I think that's because it's related, or even though it's not directly related, it's related to the to big construction contracts. Yeah, and you might yeah. see so something like yeah,
0: yeah. So th- this is not a a, a new concept, and I, in fact I'd be I'd be surprised if if a new government did not <laughs> uh, come up with with something like this. So. Well, gosh, there's there's an enormous amount of detail to come, isn't there, Stephen? And this is only uh, one page of, of the outcomes document, so I really look forward to some other people from Kingston Reid discussing over the next few weeks uh, some of the other big-ticket items that look like will be the, the subject of pretty extensive consultation over the months to come. So thanks very much for your time, Stephen and really look forward to the rest of the the podcast series. No worries. Thank you. Thank you.